0: Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. All books that Uvula Audio presents are in the public domain. Volume 3 Letter 7 Honolulu, March 1866 The equestrian excursion concluded. I wandered along the sea beach on my steed O'ahu around the base of the extinct crater of Lehi or Diamond Head And a quarter of a mile beyond the point I overtook the party of ladies and gentlemen and assumed my proper place, that is, in the rear. For the horse I ride always persists in remaining in the rear in spite of kicks, cuffs, and curses. I was satisfied as long as I could keep a wahoo within hailing distance of the cavalcade. I knew I could accomplish nothing better even if a wahoo were Norfolk himself. We went on and on and on. Great deal too far, I thought, for people who were unaccustomed to riding on horseback and who must expect to suffer on the morrow if they indulge too freely in this sort of exercise. Finally, we got to a point which we were expecting to go around in order to strike an easy road home, but we were too late. It was full tide and the sea had closed in on the shore. Young Henry MacFarlane said he knew a nice comfortable route over the hill, a shortcut, cut and the crowd dropped into his wake. We climbed the hill a 150 feet high, and about as straight up and down as the side of a house, and as full of rough lava blocks as could stick. Not as wide, perhaps, as the broad road that leads to destruction, but nearly as dangerous to travel, and apparently leading in the same general direction. I felt for the ladies, but I had no time to speak any words of sympathy, by reason of my attention being so much occupied by Oahu. The place was so steep that at times he stood straight up on his tiptoes and clung by his foretoes, with his back to the Pacific Ocean and his nose close to the moon, and thus situated we formed an equestrian picture which was as uncomfortable to me as might have been picturesque to the spectators. You may think I was afraid, but I was not. I knew I could stay on him as long as his ears did not pull out. It was with great relief to me to know that we were all safe and sound on the summit at last, because the sun was just disappearing in the waves. Night was broad in the land, and candles and lamps were already twinkling in the distant town, and we gratefully reflected that Henry had saved us for having to go back around the rocky sandy beach. But a new trouble arose while the party were admiring the rising moon and the cool balmy night breeze with its odor of countless flowers for it was discovered that we had got into a place we could not get out of. We were apparently surrounded by precipices. Our pilot's chart was at fault, and he could not extricate us. And so we had the prospect before us of either spending the night in the admired night breeze under the admired moon, or clambering down the way we had come in the dark. However, Kanaka came along presently and found a first-rate road for us, down an almost Imperceptible decline, and the party set out on a cheerful gallop again, and Oahu struck up his miraculous canter once more. The moon rose up and flooded the mountain and valley and ocean with silvery light, and I was not sorry we had lately been in trouble, because the consciousness of being safe again raised our spirits and made us more capable of enjoying the beautiful scene than we would have been otherwise i never breathed such a soft, delicious atmosphere before, nor one freighted with as much rich fragrance. A barber shop is nothing to it. A battleground whose history is forgotten. Gaily laughing and talking, the party galloped on, and with set teeth and bouncing body, I clung to the pommel and cantered after. Presently we came to a place where no grass grew, a wide expanse of deep sand. They said it was an old battleground. All around, everywhere, not three feet apart, the bleached bones of men gleamed white in the moonlight. We picked up a lot of them for mementos. I got quite a number of arm bones and leg bones, of great chiefs, maybe, who had fought savagely in that fearful battle in the old days, when blood flowed like wine where we now stood, and were the choicest of them out on Oahu afterwards, trying to make him go. All sorts of bones could be found except skulls, but a citizen said irreverently that there had been an unusual number of skull hunters there lately, a species of sportsman I had never heard of before. The conversation at this point took a unique and ghastly turn, and a gentleman said, "'Give me some of your bones, Miss Blank. I'll carry them for you,' and another said, "'You haven't got bones enough, Mrs. Blank. Here's a good shin bone if you want it.' Such observations as these fell from the lips of ladies with references to their queer, newly-acquired property. "'Mr. Brown, will you please hold some of my bones for me a minute?' And, "'Mr. Smith, have you got some of my bones? And you have got one too, Mr. Jones. And you have got my spine, Mr. Twain. Now don't any of you gentlemen get my bones all mixed up with yours, so that you can't tell them apart?' These remarks look very irreverent on paper, but they did not sound so, being used merely in a business way, and with no intention of making sport of the remains. I did not think it was just right to carry off any of these bones, but we did it anyhow. We consider that it was at least as right as the Hawaiian government in the city of Honolulu, which is the most excessively moral and religious town that can be found on the map of the world, to permit these remains to lie decade after decade to bleach and rot in the sun and wind and suffer desecration by careless strangers and by the beasts of the field unprotected by even a worm fence. Call us hard names if you will, you statesmen and missionaries, but I say shame upon you that after raising a nation from idolatry to Christianity and from barbarism to civilization, you have not taught it the comment of respect for the dead. Your work is incomplete legendary nothing whatever is known about this place its story is a secret that will never be revealed the oldest natives make no pretense of being possessed of its history they say that these bones were here when they were children they were here when their grandfathers were children but how they came here they can only conjecture many people believe this spot to be an ancient battleground and it is usual to call it so and they believe these skeletons have lain for ages just where their proprietors fell in the great fight. Other people believe that Kamehameha I fought his first battle here. On this point, I have heard a story which may have been taken from one of the numerous books which have been written concerning these islands. I do not know where the narrator got it. He said that when Kamehameha, who was at first merely a subordinate chief on the island of Hawaii, landed here, he brought a large army with him, and encamped at Waikiki. The Oahuans marched against them, and so confident were they of success that they readily acceded to the demand of their priests that they should draw a line where these bones now lie, and take an oath that, if forced to retreat at all, they would never retreat beyond this boundary. The priests told them that death and everlasting punishment would overtake any who violated the oath, and the march resumed. Kamehameha drove them back step by step. The priests fought in the front rank, and exhorted them, both by voice and inspiring example, to remember their oath, to die if need be, but never cross that fatal line. The struggle was manfully maintained, but at last the chief priest fell, pierced to the heart with a spear, and the unlucky omen fell like a blight upon the brave souls at his back, and with a triumphant shout the invaders pressed forward. The line was crossed, the offended gods deserted the despairing army, and accepting the doom their perjury had brought upon them. They broke and fled over the plain where Honolulu now stands. Up the beautiful Nuanu Valley, paused a moment hemmed in by the precipitous mountains on either side and the frightful precipice of Pali in front of them, and then were driven over, a sheer plunge of 600 feet. The story is pretty enough, but Mr. Jarvis's excellent history says the Oahuans were entrenched in Nuanu Valley, that Kamehameha ousted them, rousted them, pursued them up the valley, and drove them over the precipice. He makes no mention of our boneyard at all in his book. There was a terrible pestilence in 1804 which killed great numbers of inhabitants, and the natives have legends of others that have swept the islands long before that, and therefore many persons now believe these bones belong to victims of one of these epidemics who were hastily buried in a great pit. It is by far the most reasonable conjecture, because Jarvis says that the weapons of the islanders were so rude and inefficient that their battles were not very often bloody. If this was a battle, it was astonishingly deadly, for in spite of the depredations of skull hunters, we rode a considerable distance over ground so thickly strewn with human bones that the horses' feet crushed them, not occasionally, but at every step. Sentiment Impressed by the profound silence and repose that rested over the beautiful landscape, and being as usual in the rear, I gave voice to my thought, and I said, What a picture is here slumbering in the solemn glory of the moon! How strong the rugged outlines of the dead volcano stand against the clear sky! What a snowy fringe marks the bursting of the surf over the long curved reef! How calmly the dim city sleeps yonder in the plain! How soft the shadows lie upon the stately mountains that border the dream-haunted Manoa Valley. What a grand pyramid of billowy clouds towers over the storied Pali. How the grim warriors of the past seem flocking in ghostly squadrons to their ancient battlefield again. How the wails of the dying well up from the... At this point, the horse called O'ahu deliberately sat down in the sand sat down to listen, I suppose, never mind what he heard. I stopped apostrophizing and convinced him I was not a man to allow contempt of court on the part of a horse. I broke the backbone of a chief over his rump and set out to join the cavalcade again. Very considerably fagged out, we arrived in town at nine o'clock at night, myself in the lead, for when my horse finally came in to understand that he was homeward bound and hadn't far to go, He threw his legs wildly out before him and behind him, depressed his head, and laid his ear of his back and flew by the admiring company like a telegram. In five minutes he was far ahead of everybody. We stopped in front of a private residence. Brown and I did, to wait for the rest and see that none were lost. I soon saw I had attracted the attention of a comely young girl, and I felt duly flattered. Perhaps, thought I, she admires my horsemanship and I made a savage jerk at the bridle and said, "'Ho, will ye?" to show how fierce and unmanageable the beast was, though, to say truly, he was leaning up against a hitching post peaceably enough at the time. I stirred a wahoo up and moved him about, and went up the street a short distance to look for the party, and loped gallantly back again, all the while making a pretense of being unconscious that I was an object of interest." I then addressed a few perk comments to Brown to give the young lady a chance to admire my style of conversation and was gratified to see her step up and whisper to Brown and glance furtively at me at the same time. I could see her gentle face bore an expression of the most kindly and earnest solicitude and I was shocked and angered to hear Brown burst out in a fit of brutal laughter. As soon as we started home, I asked with a fair show of indifference what she'd said and Brown laughed again and said, huh! She thought from the slouchy way you rode and the way you drawled out your words that you were drunk. She said, why don't you take the poor creature home, Mr. Brown? Makes me nervous see him galloping that horse and just hanging on that way. He's so drunk. I laughed very loudly at the joke, but it was a sort of hollow, sepulchral laugh after all. And then I took it out on wahoo, An old acquaintance. I have filed an old acquaintance here, Reverend Franklin S. Rising of the Episcopal Ministry, who has had charge of the church in Virginia City, Nevada, for several years, and who is well known in Sacramento and San Francisco. He sprained his knee September last and is here for his health. He thinks he has made no progress worth mentioning toward regaining it, but I think differently. He can ride on horseback and is able to walk a few steps without his crutches, things he could not do a week ago. While we were marching through Georgia. The popular song Nuisance follows us here. In San Francisco, it used to be just before the battle Mother, every night and all night long, and then it was when Johnny comes marching home. After that, it was wearing of the green, and last and most dreadful of all came that calamity of while we were marching through Georgia. It was the last thing I heard when the ship sailed, and it gratified me to think I should hear it no more for months. And now here in the dead of night, at the very outpost and fag end of the world, on a little rock in the middle of a limitless ocean, a pack of dark-skinned savages are tramping down the street, singing it with a vim and an energy that makes my hair rise, singing it in their own barbarous tongue. And they have got the tune down to perfection. Otherwise, I would have never suspected that waikiki lantani oi Ka, huli huli wahoo means while we were marching through Georgia. If it would have been all the same to General Sherman, I wish it would have gone around by the way of the Gulf of Mexico instead of marching through Georgia. Mark Twain. Letter 8. Honolulu, April 1866. Off. Mounted on my noble steed, Hawaii, a beast that costs $13 and is able to go his mile in three, with a bit of margin to it, I departed Saturday last week for, well, for any place that might turn up. Saturday in Honolulu. Passing through the marketplace, we saw that feature of Honolulu under its most favorable auspices. That is, in the full glory of Saturday afternoon, which is a festive day with the natives. The native girls by twos and threes and parties of a dozen and sometimes in whole platoons and companies when cantering up and down the neighboring streets astride of fleet but homely horses and with their gaudy riding habits streaming like banners behind them. Such a troop of free and easy riders in their natural home, which is the saddle, makes a gay and graceful and exhilarating spectacle. The riding habit I speak of is simply a long, broad scarf like a tavern tablecloth, brilliantly colored, wrapped around the loins once and then apparently passed up between the limbs and each end thrown backwards over the same and floating and flapping behind on both sides beyond the horse's tail like a couple of fancy flags. And then with a girl that throws her chest forward and sits up like a major general and goes sweeping by like the wind. Gay, says Brown with fine irony. Oh, you can't mean that. The girls put on all the finery they can scare up on Saturday afternoon. Fine black silk robes, flowing red ones that nearly put your eyes out, others as white as snow, still others that discount the rainbow, and they wear their hair in nets and trim their jaunty hats with fresh flowers and encircle their dusky throats with homemade necklaces of the brilliant vermilion-tinted blossom of the Ohio and fill the market and the adjacent streets with their bright presences and smell like thunder with their villainous coconut oil. Occasionally you can see a heathen from the sunny isles away down the South Seas with his eyes and neck tattooed till he looks like the customary unfortunate from Reese River who has been blown up in a mine. Some are tattooed a dead blue color drawn to the upper lip, masked as it were, leaving the natural light yellow skin of Micronesia unstained from thence down. Some with broad marks drawn from their hair to neck on both sides of the face and a strip of the original yellow skin two inches wide down the center, a gridiron with a spoke broken out. And some with the entire face discolored with a popular mortification tint, relieved only by one or two thin, wavy threads of natural yellow running across the face from ear to ear and eyes twinkling out of this darkness from under the shadowing hat brims like stars in the dark of the moon. Poi for sale. Moving among the stirring crowds, you come to the poi merchants, squatting in the shade on their hams in true native fashion and surrounded by the purchasers. Sandwich Islanders always squat on their hams and who knows, but they may be the original ham sandwiches. The thought is pregnant with interest. The poi looks like common flour paste and is kept in large bowls formed of a species of gourd and is capable of holding from one to four gallons poi is the chief article of food among the natives and is prepared from the kalo or taro plant the taro root looks like a thick or if you please a corpulent sweet potato in shape but is of a light purple color when boiled when boiled it answers to a passable substitute for bread the buck kanakas Bake it under the ground, then mash it up well with a heavy lava pestle, mix water with it until it becomes a paste, then set it aside and let it ferment. And then it is poi, a villainous mixture that is almost tasteless before it ferments and too sour for luxury afterwards. But nothing in the world is more nutritious. When solely used, however, it produces acrid humors, a fact that sufficiently accounts for the blithe and humorous character of the Kanakas. I think there must be as much of a knack of handling poi as there is in eating with chopsticks. The forefinger is thrust into the mess and stirred quickly around several times and drawn out quickly, thickly coated, just as if it were poulticed. The head is thrown back, the finger inserted into the mouth, and the poultice stripped off and swallowed, the eye closing gently, meanwhile in a languid sort of ecstasy. Many a different finger goes into the same bowl, and many a different kind of dirt and shade and quality of flavor is added to the virtues of its content. One tall gentleman, with nothing in the world on but a soiled and greasy shirt, thrust in his finger and tested the poi, shook his head, scratched it with the useful finger, made another test, prospected among his hair, caught something and ate it, tested the poi again, wiped the grimy perspiration from his brow with the universal hand and tested again. And blew his nose. Let's move on, Brown, I said, and so we did. Awa for sale. Ditto fish. Around a small shanty was collected a crowd of natives buying the awa root. It is said that but for the use of this root, the destruction of the people in former times by venereal diseases would have been far greater than it was, and by others it is said that this is merely a fancy. All agree that poi will rejuvenate a man who is used up and his vitality almost annihilated by hard drinking, and that in some kinds of diseases it will restore health after all medicines have failed. But all are not willing to allow to the awa the virtues claim to it. The natives manufacture an intoxicating drink which is fearful in its effects when persistently indulged in. It covers the body with dry white scales and flames the eyes and causes premature decrepitude, Although the man before whose establishment we stopped has to pay a government license of $800 a year for an exclusive right to sell our route, it is said that he makes a small fortune every 12 months, while saloon keepers who pay $1,000 a year for the privilege of retailing whiskey, etc., only make a bare living. We found the fish market crowded, for the native is very fond of fish and eats the article raw. Let's change the subject. Old Time Saturdays. In old times here, Saturday was a grand gala day indeed. All the native population of the town forsook their labors, and those of the surrounding country journeyed to the city. Then the white folks had to stay indoors, for every street was so packed with charging cavaliers and cavalieresses that it was next to impossible to thread one's way through the cavalcades without getting crippled. In the afternoon, the natives were wont to repair to the plain outside the town and indulge in their ancient sports and pastimes and bet away their week's earnings on horse races. One might see two or three thousand, some say five thousand, of these wild riders scurrying over the plain in a mass in those days, and it must have been a fine sight. At night, they feasted and the girls danced the lascivious Hula Hula, a dance that is said to exhibit the very perfection of educated motion of limb and hand and arm and head and body and the exactest uniformity of movement and accuracy of time it was performed by a circle of girls with no raiment on them to speak of who went through with an infinite variety of motion and figures without prompting and yet so true was their timing and in such perfect concert did they move that when they were placed in a straight line, hands, arms, bodies, limbs, and heads, waved, swayed, gesticulated, bowed, stooped, whirled, squirmed, twisted, and undulated, as if they were parted and parceled of a single individual. And it was difficult to believe that they were not moved in a body by some exquisite piece of mechanism. Of late years, however, Saturday has lost most of its quantum gala features, This weekly stampede of natives interfered too much with labor and the interests of the white folks, and by sticking in a law here and preaching a sermon there and by various other means they gradually broke it up. The demoralizing hula hula was forbidden to be performed, save at night, with closed doors, in the presence of few spectators, and only by permission duly procured from the authorities and the payment of ten dollars for the same. There are few girls nowadays able to dance as ancient national dance, and the highest perfection of the art. THE GOVERNMENT PRISON Cantering across the bridge and down the firm, level, gleaming white coral turnpike that leads toward the south, or west, or east, or north, the points of the compass being all the same to me, and as much as, for good reasons, I have not had the opportunity thus far to discover the whereabouts that the sun rises in this country, "'I know where it sets, but I don't know how it gets there, nor which direction it comes from. "'We presently arrived at a massive coral edifice which I took for a fortress at first, "'but found out directly that it was the government prison. "'A soldier at the great gate admitted us without further authority than my countenance, "'and I suppose he thought he was paying me a handsome compliment, "'and so did I until I reflected that the place was a penitentiary.' However, as far as appearances went, it might have been the king's palace, so neat and clean and white and so full of the fragrance of flowers was the establishment, and I was satisfied. We passed through a commodious office, whose walls were ornamented with linked strands of polished handcuffs and fetters, through a hall and among the cells above and below. The cells for the men were eight or ten feet high, roomy enough to accommodate two prisoners and their hammocks, usually put in each, and have room for several more. The floors were scrubbed clean and were guiltless of spot or stain of any kind, and the painfully white walls were unmarred by a single mark or blemish. Through ample gratings, one could see the blue sky and get his hair blown off by the cool breeze. They call this a prison? It's the pleasantest quarters in Honolulu. There are four wards, and 132 prisoners can be housed in rare and roomy comfort within them. There were a number of native women in the female department. Poor devils. They hung their heads under the prying eyes of our party as if they were ashamed of being there. In the condemned cell, and squatting on the floor, all swathed in blankets, as if it were cold weather, was a brown-faced, gray-bearded old scalawag, who in a frolicsome mood had massacred three women and a batch of children his own property, I believe, and reflects upon that exploit with genuine satisfaction to this hour, and will go to the gallows as tranquilly and different as a white man will go to dinner. Out the Back Door The prison yard, that satin enclosure which, in the prisons of my Native America, is a cheerless barren, yieldeth no fruit save the gallows tree with its sorrowful human fruit, is a very garden here. The beds, bordered by roads of inverted bottles, the usual style here, were filled with all manner of dainty flowers and shrubs. Chinese mulberry and orange trees stood here and there, well-stocked with fruit. A beautiful little pine tree, rare and imported from the far south seas, occupied the center with sprays of gracefully arching green spears springing outward like parasol tops at marked and regular intervals. "'up its slender stem and diminishing in diameter "'with mathematical strictness of graduation "'till the sprouting plume at the top "'stood over a perfect pyramid. "'Vines clambered everywhere and hid from view "'and clothed with beauty everything "'that might otherwise have been suggestive "'of chains in captivity. "'There was nothing here to remind one of a prison "'save a brace of dovecoats "'straining several pretty birds brought hither "'from strange, strange lands beyond the sea.' These sometimes may pine for liberty, and their old free life among the clouds or in the shade of the orange groves or abroad in the breezy ocean. But if they do, it's likely they take it out in pining as a general thing. Captain Tate, Scriptural Student Against one wall of the prison house stands an airy little building which does duty as a hospital. A harmless old lunatic named Captain Tate has his quarters here. He has a wife and children in town, but he prefers the prison hospital and has demanded and enjoyed its hospitality, slip of the pen, no joke intended, for years. He visits his family at long intervals, being free to go and come as he pleases, but he always drifts back to the prison again after a few days. His is a religious mania, and he professes to read 60 chapters of the Bible every day and write them down in a book. He was about down to chapter thirty-five when I was introduced to him. I should judge, as it was nearly two in the afternoon. And I said, "'What book are you reading, Captain?' "'The Precious of the Precious, the Book of Books, the Sacred Scriptures, sir.' "'Do you read a good deal in it?' Sixty chapters every day, and write them down, all in plain legible hand.' "'That is a good deal. At that rate, you must ultimately get through and run short of material, sir.' ah but the lord looks out for his own i am in his hands and he does with me as he will i often read some of the same chapters over again for the lord tells me what to read and it's not for me to choose providence always shows me the place no hanging fire i mean can you always depend on on this information coming to time every day so to speak always always sir I take the sacred volume in my hand, in this manner every morning in a devout and prayerful spirit, and immediately, without any volition on my part, my fingers insert themselves between the leaves, so directed from above, and I know that the Lord desires me to open at that place and begin. I never have to select the chapter myself. The Lord always does it for me. I heard Brown mutter. Old man appears to have a good thing, anyway, and his poi don't cost him anything, either. Providence looks out for his regular 60, the prison looks out for his hash, and his family looks out for itself. i never seen any sounder maniac than him, and I've been around considerable. General George Washington We were next introduced to General George Washington, or at least to an aged, limping Negro man who called himself by that honored name. He was supposed to be 70 years old, and he looked it. He was as crazy as a loon, and sometimes they say he grows very violent. He was a Samson in a small way. His arms were corded with muscle, and his legs felt as hard as if they were made of wood. He was in a peaceable mood at present, and strongly manacled. They have a hard time with him occasionally, and sometime or other he will get into a lively way and eat up the garrison of that prison, no doubt. The native soldiers who guard the place are afraid of him, and he knows it. His history is a sealed book or at least all that part of it which transpired previously to the entry of his name as a pensioner upon the Hawaiian government fifteen years ago. He was found carrying on at a high rate at one of the other islands, and it is supposed he was put ashore there from a vessel called the Olive Branch. He has evidently been an old sailor, and it's thought he was one of a party of Negroes who fitted out a ship and sailed from New England port some twenty years ago. He is fond of talking in his dreamy and coherent way about the Blue Ridge in Virginia and seems familiar with Richmond and Lynchburg. I do not think he is the old original General W., by the way. Aloft Upstairs in the prison are the handsome apartments used by the officers of the establishment, also a museum of quaint and curious weapons of offense and defense of all nations and all ages of the world, The prison is to a great extent a self-supporting institution through the labor of the convicts farmed out to load and unload ships and work on the highways, and I'm not sure but that it supports itself and pays a surplus into the public treasury besides, but I have no note of this, and I seldom place implicit confidence in my memory in matters where figures and finances are concerned, and have not been thought of for a fortnight." This government prison is in the hands of W.C. Park, Marshal of the Kingdom, and he has small need to be ashamed of his management of it. Without wishing to betray too much knowledge of such a matter, I should say that this is the model prison of the western half of the world, at any rate. Mark Twain Letter 9 Honolulu, April 1866 A Sad Accident I have just met an estimable lady, Mrs. Captain Jollipson, whose husband, with her assistance, commands the whaling bark, Lucretia Wilkerson. And she said, Oh, I've never had such a time of it. I'm clean out of luck, I do believe. The wind's been dead ahead with me all day. It appears to me that I can't do no way, but it comes out wrong. First I turned out this morning and says I, Here's a go, eight bells and no duff yet. And I just knowed it's going to blow great guns for me today. And so it's come out. Start fair, sail fair. Otherwise, just reverse. Well, I hove on my dress and cleared for the market and took the big basket, which I don't do when I'm alone because I'm on the short lay when it comes to eatin'. But when the old man's in port, it's different, you know. And I go fixed when I recruit for him and never come back in ballast then because he's on the long lay. And it's expensive, too, you can depend on it. His leakage and shrinkage grows up on his home bills when he goes out of port, and it's all on account of recruiting, too, though he says it's on account of toggery for me, which is likely yarn, when I can't even buy a set of new halyards for my bonnet, but he growls, and what few slaps I do get, I gotta smuggle em, and yet bless you, if we were to ship em, the freight on mine wouldn't pay the primage on his, but where was I? Oh yes, I hove on my dress and hove down toward the market where I was laying off and on before the post office and here comes a shipkeeper round the corner three sheets to the wind with his deadlight stove in and I see by the way he was bullin' that if he didn't shear off and shorten sail he'd foul my larboard stuns and boomel which I had my basket on because you see, he's been among his friends having a bit of a gam and had got about one fid too much aboard and his judgment had fetched away in the meantime, and so he steered bad and was making latitude all the time when he ought to have been making longitude, and here he was windward of me, but making so much leeway that, well, you see how it was. I backed off fast as I could and sung out to him to port his helm, but it wasn't no use. He'd everything drawn, and I had considerable sternway, and he just struck me a little abaft of the beam, and down I went head-on and scunned my elbow." I said, Bless my life. And she said, Well, you may say it. My, such a jolt. It started everything. It's worse than being pulled. I shouldn't wonder if I'd have hove down. And then she spread her hand alongside her mouth and sung out, Susie, ahoy, to another woman who rounded to wait for her. And the two fell off before the wind and sailed away together. Translation Eight Bells Eight bell stands for the closing of a watch two to an hour four hours to a watch six watches in a day on board a ship duff is a sort of dough with dried apples or something of the kind in on extra occasions clear for market a ship clears for her voyage when she takes out her papers at the customs house short lay and long lay these phrases are confined to the whaling interest neither officers nor men get any wages on a whale ship but receive instead a proportion of all the bone and oil taken jack usually gets about the one hundredth and twentieth part of all the catch or the profits of the voyage for his share and this is called a long lay the captain generally gets a tenth twelfth or fourteenth which is a short lay and the other officers in proportion recruit The whaling voyage to the North Seas occupies about seven months. Then the vessel returns to Honolulu, transships her oil to the States, refits and goes over to the coast of California about November or December to put in her idle time catching humpback whales or devilfish, returning here in March or April to recruit, that is procure vegetables, especially potatoes, which are protective against scurvy, and give the men a few days to run on shore. And then she goes off to the North again, as early in the spring as possible. Leakage and shrinkage. When a whaler returns here with her cargo, the United States Council estimates its probable value in the east and buys the interests of the officers and men on board on behalf of the owners of the ship and pays for the same in gold. To secure the ship owner against loss, a bill of contingencies is brought against poor Jack by the Council, leakage and shrinkage being among the items which reduces the profits of his long voyage by about one-half or two-thirds. Home Bills It makes no difference how much money a sailor brings into port. He is soon head over heels in debt. In order to secure his services on a voyage, the ship is obliged to assume his indebtedness. The item is entered against Jack on the ship's books at the home port in the east as his home bill. If the voyage proves lucky, the ship gets even on Jack's home bill by subtracting it from his lay. But if she takes no oil, she must pay the bill anyhow and is out and injured, of course. Slops Improvident Jack is apt to leave port short of jackets, trousers, shirts, tobacco, pipes, letter paper, and so forth, and so on. The ship takes large quantities of these things along and supplies them to him at extremely inflated costs so that sometimes after a long unlucky voyage, no wages and heavy home bills and bills for slops, Jack will return to port very considerably in debt to the ship, and the ship must stand the loss, for an unprofitable voyage squares all such accounts. Primage. This term obtains to most seaports. No man can tell what gave it birth, for its very ancient and its origin is long ago forgotten. It is a tax of 5% on a ship's freight bills, and in old times went to her captain. in our day, however, it goes to the ship owner with the other freight money, although it forms a separate item in the freight bill, or is turned over to the agent who procured a cargo for a vessel as his commission. Laying off and on. A sailor phrase sufficiently well understood by landsmen to need no explanation. Shipkeeper. A man who stands guard on a whaler and takes care of the ship when the boats and the crew are off after whales. Bulling, a term usually applied to the chafing of vessels together when riding at anchor in harbors subject to chopping swells. Gam, the whaleman's phrase for gossip, very common here. Fid, the whaleman's term for our smile, drink. A fid is an instrument which the sailor uses when he splices the main brace on board ship. Fetched away. A nautical phrase signifying a break loose from fastenings in a storm, such as the fetching away of furniture, rigging, etc. Skunned. After examining various authors, I have discovered that this is a provincial distortion of our word skinned. Pulled. A term signifying the arraigning of a ship's officers before the courts by the crew to answer for alleged cruelties practiced upon them on the high seas, such as the pulling of captain and mate by the crews of the Mercury, the White Swallow, the Great Republic, etc. in the San Francisco courts. Here's another reason why out of the 87 American whale ships that fish in the North Seas this summer, only about 16 will venture to touch at San Francisco, either going or coming. They find it safer and cheaper to rendezvous and procure supplies here and save the 4,200 miles extra sailing, than to start from and return to San Francisco and run the chance of getting pulled. Honolulu would not amount to anything at all without her whaling trade, and so Jack cannot pull his captain here, no matter what his grievance was. The lawyer who ventured to take his case would stand a fair chance of being run out of town by the enraged community. Hove Down In ports where there are no docks, damaged vessels are hauled out and hove down on their sides when repairs to their bottoms are required by this time if you go back and read the first paragraphs of this letter you may be able to understand them every section of our western hemisphere seems supplied with a system of technicalities etiquette and slang peculiar to itself the above chapter is intended to give you a somewhat exaggerated idea of the technicalities of conversation in honolulu Bred from the great whaling interest which centers here, and naturally infused into the vocabulary of the place. Your favorite California similes were bred from the technicalities of surface mining. Those of Washoe come from the profound depths of the main lead, and those of the Honoluluans were born of the whalebone, blubber, and traffic of the seas. But no single individual would use more than one or two of the nautical and whaling phrases I have quoted in any conversation. But you might hear all of them in the course of a week if you talked with a good many people. And etiquette varies according to one's surroundings. In the mining camps of California, when a friend tenders you a smile or invites you to take a blister, it is etiquette to say, Here's hoping your dirt'll pan out gay. In Washoe, when you're requested to put in a blast or invited to take your regular pies on, etiquette admonishes you to touch glasses and say, Here's hoping you'll strike it rich in the lower level. And in Honolulu, when your friend, the whaler, asks you to take a fid with him, it's simple etiquette to say, Here's 1,800 barrels of old salt, but drink hearty is universal. That is the orthodox reply the world over. In San Francisco, sometimes, if you offend a man, he proposes to take his coat off and inquires, Are you on it? If you are, you can take your coat off, too. In Virginia City, in former times, The insulted party, if he were a true man, would lay his hand gently on his six-shooter and say, are you healed? But in Honolulu, if Smith offends Jones, Jones asks, with rising inflection on the last word, which is excessively aggravating, how much do you weigh? Smith replies, sixteen hundred forty pounds, and you? Two ton to a dot at a quarter past eleven this forenoon. Peel yourself. You're my blubber apologetic and explanatory. When I began this letter, I meant to furnish some facts and figures concerning the Great Pacific whaling traffic, to the end that San Francisco might take into consideration the expediency of making an effort to divert the patronage of the fleet to herself, if it seemed well to do so. And chiefly, I meant to try and explain why that patronage does not gravitate to that center naturally and of its own accord, True, many know the reason already and need no explanation, but many more do not understand it so well, or know so much about it. But not being in a sufficiently serious mood today, I have wisely left for my next letter the discussion of a subject of such overwhelming gravity. Mark Twain